getting those hazard characters in there and then showing them repeat allows us to demonstrate that character growth over time in a way that doesn't feel heavy-handed to the reader. Hey, Writing Pursuits authors, welcome back to the podcast. To those of you who are new, I want to extend a special welcome. My name is Kathrice McKee, and I'm glad you're here. If you are a writer seeking encouragement, information, and inspiration, this podcast is for you. Let's get to it. Today, we're going to have Jeff Elkins, the Dialogue Doctor, on the program, and I'm very excited. Yes, so Jeff Elkins, yeah, Jeff Elkins is the author of 11 novels, the host of the Dialogue Doctor podcast, and a writing coach. Since launching um, the Dialogue Doctor in 2020, he's held more than 200 coaching sessions wow, <laughs> with authors, helping them write dialogue and create characters that will engage readers, which is the main thing. Jeff is also the author of The Dialogue Doctor Will See You Now. Great title, by the way. How to Write Dialogue and Characters Readers Will Love. A primer on all the Dialogue Doctor community has learned about writing great dialogue. So, wow. 200. Angie Thomas is the hate you give. And she's another one. Man, she has these scenes of like five, six characters. Mm-hmm. The whole ending climax are a string of scenes with like six, seven, and eight characters wow. at a time. And she just balances them so well. Uh, but it is it is hard, and there's craft to it. And there's things you got to pay attention to, like make sure it works for the reader's imagination. I have a question about that because yeah, uh, when you get, let's say, six characters on a page, and I just had a book where there were like, Frequently, there were six characters on a page, and it was it it fell into this pattern where it was either Sally said, Bent said, you know, whatever mm-hmm. said, or it was uh, it was Sally nodded line, uh, Dawn did this line, uh, and and it went on, and every 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 paragraph started to begin with a character's name or had yeah. A char- yeah it became it can get tough. Mm. yeah it can get tough and the the key is to work that like body language the key is to understand how your vocalizations sound coming out of the character's mouth that's the first thing because you can work your tags and your body language into the middle of vocalizations as long as you're finding the right beat of that vocalization or as long as your word choices, like it sounds like the character, it is something they yeah. would say and the way they would say Absolutely. It. Okay. And so having dynamic character voices really helps with that because, you know, if you, if you have, let's say you have a scene of, well, let's look at TJ Clunes under the Cerulean Sea where he's got a scene of like eight characters at a time. Of those eight characters, one of them is nonverbal and just communicating in chirps and body language. So if something chirps, you know that that's that character. Um, another, So now we're down to seven, right, uh-huh. that we got to use tags with. Right. One of them has a very distinct voice and in, in, the, in the topics that he discusses right like he's obsessed with bellhops so if you if somebody has a line about a bellhop you know it's that character so like right. now we're down to five right like mm-hmm. one of them is the antichrist and is constantly talking about setting things on fire and burning <laughs> them and naming people again 
another one that we can like, okay, every once in a while, this character can stand without a dialogue tag or without body language because we know that specific vocalization belongs to Lucy, right? Like no one else is going to say that. And if somebody else does say it, you need to recognize that that's them. So now we're down to, you know, four. Well, a four-person conversation is way more manageable, especially if you're spacing in these other characters that don't necessarily need the tag or the vocalization or the body language. But even with those four, you know, another key, I think another mistake writers make, and I do talk about this a little bit in the book, another mistake writers make with these big, um, large scenes is they think that in every segment, so every portion of the conversation, every character has to be involved. And like in a routine. So like you have to have character A, character B, character C, character D, character A, character B, character C, character D, character uh, A, character B, yes. character C, character D. And then you're like, so like, okay, wow, this isn't this isn't how <laughs> real conversations work, right? Like yeah, A and bystanders. B, yeah, A and B are gonna talk a lot more and C and D are just gonna not. Right. So the key is like let A and B have the conversation and then every every couple segments touch back in with C and D and just let us know how they feel about what's going on through their body language, but you don't need to put them all together. And if you've got like, you know, eight characters in a scene, consider grouping some of them together in a chorus and what a chorus speaking chorus is like the Greek chorus in Greek literature where a bunch of people stood on the stage and spoke in unison, right? Like consider. (laughs) So going back to the example of house of the Cerulean sea in one of the later chapters, Clune has, a uh, mob scene and so you've got two characters in the mob that kind of represent the mob and they have their own voices voices. coming out of the mob and then you have three characters kind of standing against the mob and then you've got the mob and it says like the mob yelled the mob shouted the mob stomped their feet right like what you're doing is you're taking a whole ton of characters and you're putting them into a chorus so that they operate as a single character and you allow you that way you can cut down on the number of voices you have to manage. You can manage a group as a single character. So you don't have to have a mob to do that. You could be like, you know, these, well, JP, uh, Ryan flesh and I write a Vela together and there's two characters that I will often group together. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's you know, Doris and Trevor, blah, blah, blah. And so, like, they usually respond to things the same way. They typically have similar opinions on things. So I can put them together when, like, you know, Doris and Trevor laughed, right? Like, so the, I can, I don't have to have, like, a Doris laughed and Trevor laughed. Like, right. I can drop them into a chorus. They can operate as a single character. So the key is, like, finding you trying to group characters in that way so that it, you can check in with them and not have to, like, keep bringing them back in the conversation all the time. Well, and I think sometimes um, one one character will speak for both. Yeah. You know, if, yeah. Because the, by then, by at a certain point, the reader's going to know that they have similar opinions. And the, if one of them doesn't disagree, well, then they obviously kind of agree, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that that's a, a good way to do that. Um, why are the terms hero, villain, and side character, because we were talking about all these things, yeah. not helpful when it comes to designing your character's growth. Yeah, so this is something we talk about at the end of the book. One of the problems we were having in the community is we would sit down to like plot out the novel. And specifically, the problem would be like, 
uh, my character doesn't grow and I don't understand my themes. Ah. Right, like I, I'm struggling with the themes of my book and my character is not growing. So I'd be like, well, if we can figure out how your character is going to grow, we can go from there to your themes, right? Like, so if your character is moving from um, innocence to adulthood, then you're mm-hmm. one of your themes is coming of age, right? Like if your character is struggling with coping with their depression and finding healthy ways to cope with your depression, then a theme is depression. Right. Like, so we find our themes by finding how our character grows. And so if we, we started looking at it and be like, okay, well, so, you know, who's encouraging your character to grow and who's hindering your character to grow so that when we build a scene, we can say like, okay, I need my character to struggle here. I got to put something in the scene to hinder. It'd be like, well, this is the villain, but the villain doesn't really hinder character growth. The villain kind of encourages character growth. And she's not really the villain. Not really. Like, you know, she's actually just, you know, misunderstood. And she's got, you know, this, she has her own perspective. And and this is the best friend. So I guess if I need an ally in this scene, I should get the best friend. But the best friend's actually kind of a jerk and doesn't really, like, get along with the, the character and you know and you know this character is going to be the villain of the first of the book but then by the time of the end of the book the character is actually going to be redeemed mm-hmm. right right so i just <laughs> described like some problems in angie thomas's the hate you give right because there are no villains there are no he- like there is a hero but the allies aren't always allies the villains aren't always villains people are constantly trading places in the book which is great it makes for a super dynamic story but it stinks when we talk about how do you get her character to grow right in comparison to these other characters because it makes all of the characters feel a little schizophrenic so because sometimes this character's helping sometimes this character's hurting what's going on so we started using the terms engine and anchor Engine being, you know, a dish, not your lead character, but other characters that help your lead character grow mm-hmm. are engines. They help your character go. And then anchors are characters that hold your character back. Right. So, oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, if you want a scene where your character is going to be tempted to behave as the worst version of themselves and not grow or remain mm-hmm. static and not grow, put an anchor in the scene. And then you have somebody who's going to encourage that character not to grow. Now, that anchor might be the villain. That anchor might be an ally. That anchor right. might be, you know, that anchor could be the character's mom. That anchor could be the the character's best friend, right? Like in The Hate You Give, the anchor, one of the anchors is uh, the character's best friend at school, right? Like every time she comes around, Star, the lead character, is the is tempted to be the worst version of herself. Right. Like, so it's that. And then if you want to see him doing things, right. Yeah. If you want a scene where you want your character to be conflicted, put them in a scene with an engine and an anchor, right? Like, and let the engine and the anchor fight it out. So like Lord of the Rings, we have this in the Lord of the Rings saga, which people love. There is this like section of the book, this plot line of the book that is very slow in comparison to the other plot lines. And it is Mm -hmm. Sam and Frodo marching to mordor right and it's a lot of walking through swamps walking and walking and and trudging trudging (laughs) through the desert and (laughs) sam is an engine to frodo sam is constantly like let's go let's do it we got this we can do this right like mr frodo you've got to keep going you can't give up what about the shire remember the things you love if it's just sam and frodo then we are uh, on an encouraging and slow walk with little conflict besides will they catch us, 
which stops being fun after the third time you don't get caught. So that (laughs) what what you do is you take an anchor and Gollum and you throw Gollum into the mix or Smigel. And now you've got a character who's constantly telling Frodo, take the ring for yourself, become the worst version of yourself. It's our precious. We can have it. You know, stop sharing it with the filthy hobbitses. And then you've got Sam that's like, hey, we got to keep going to the Shire. And now you have conflict in every scene just with the presence of these two characters. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I see um, in your book that there's vehicle engine anchor and hazard what are the vehicle and the hazard oh so we talk about the vehicle as your lead character because they're the character you're on the the emotional journey with right um and then the hazard hazard just to fun a lot of times in in when i'm working with authors they'll have like side characters right that third character or whatever yeah and the side character well like you know you'll have your two characters are in an uber and there's an uber driver and a lot of times the scene will be a little bland because you gotta got you gotta get like your engine encouraging your vehicle in the back of an Uber, right? Like, and it's like, yeah, you have to have this scene, you have to have this moment of encouragement, but not a lot of fun is happening, right? Like, so if you want the scene to be more fun, make use of that side character and turn them into a hazard. Make their voice super big, take one trait from their voice and blow it up. Make them big and loud, and then they're either super shy. Or they're super passionate about something, or they're you know super nerdy, or they're super take a trait from them, make it huge, blow their voice up, and now you have a hazard in your character's journey that your character has to navigate around it during the scene. So it just makes the scene more fun. Like Save the Cat does this too in their plotting line. They'll say like, okay, now whenever you you have a slow point in the plot, put a pope in the pool. Right, like put something crazy <laughs> happening in the background. And so it's the same here. Like if you've got a scene that feels kind of dud duddish, you know, and then you've got your two characters sitting in a coffee house trying to have a, a serious conversation, but you're like, Man, I don't want this to feel so heavy. Make the waitress fun, right? Like make the make the barista a big hazard character that your vehicle's gonna have to swerve around in order to in order to uh create a scene and what i find what's funny uh, about us as writers is when we successfully write a hazard character we end up wanting to bring them back all the time oh absolutely because they're super fun to write it's fun to do yeah they're <laughs> super fun to write so we're constantly wanting to bring them back so you know they end up being a great tool for character growth because you have a repeated scene with the hazard character you can put them at it multiple times in your book and we can see how your lead character responds to them differently and grows each along time. the way and grows right. along the way. So I love it. One of my favorite authors, uh Friedrich Bachman, who wrote a man called Ove, he has a repeated scene at the beginning of the end of the book where Ove goes to the Apple store to try to get his iPad fixed. The Apple Store employee is definitely a hazard character. He is a generations separated from Ove and the, just the pure stereotype of that generation. Okay. And so the first time Ove goes in, he gets angry and he ends up not getting what he needs and he's mad and he kind of storms off. The second time he goes in with a friend and we see that Ove has grown. He's learned to embrace community, which is a part of a big part of the, the plot of Ove's, Ove's character growth. So 
it's that getting those hazard characters in there and then showing them repeat allows us to demonstrate that character growth over time in a way that doesn't feel heavy handed to the reader. Right. Right. Like right. it doesn't feel like something the, the reader's not like, Oh, I see what you're doing here. It's, the reader's just enjoying the scene. It seems organic. It seems organic. If you want to see this, like if you want to see this on steroids, the old movie with Bill Murray groundhog day. Right. Oh my goodness. Is Bill Murray, his love interest, and then an entire cast of hazard characters. He right. just keeps, they're all big personalities. They're one note, right? Like, and he just keeps encountering them over and over and over again. And that's the, the whole, that's the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> Ned, Ned, Ned Flanders, right? Like, it's just right. this like constant, <laughs> you know, let's repeat the same characters over and over. And we can see Bill Murray like change around them. So change it's a, and grow. And change and grow as he encounters them over and over finally becoming the kind of person who could like function in this community in a positive way right and actually deserve the girl you know <laughs> I, yeah i mean maybe there's a i have questions about the ethics of that movie but it's great for hazard characters not so great for morality but that's a whole different question especially the part about the piano you know yeah yeah so weird yeah he totally convinces that piano teacher that she does <laughs> yeah and there's a it's funny there's a uh there's a theory online or not a theory there are blogs online dedicated to figuring out how long he is in that movie it, it has to it, be a while it is it is uh, hundreds of years to do the things that the master the skills that he masters hundreds of years oh of, of living that same day over and over again oh awful yeah. okay well anyway but fun to watch so when you Pulling back to the dialogue and the balance between dialogue and exposition, how should dialogue look in your novel? And I, I think it does have an appearance. It does. I feel like, well, the first thing I do when I edit a piece is I just open the Word doc up and scan it because mm-hmm. I can tell. I can tell like, oh, if this is exposition heavy, I'm going to see a whole bunch of heavy pod, like heavy paragraphs, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. I tell writers like, hey, try to keep it less than eight. If you can keep it less than five, three to five is kind of the sweet spot of like how many expositional paragraphs you can have in a row. Try to keep it less than eight, but I'll get documents, especially in like fantasy and sci-fi where we're like 15 to 20 paragraphs in. We are three pages in before we have a line. Before we have a line of somebody talking. But the best writers, you know, I just picked up a John Grisham. He has a book of short stories. He's one that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. I love reading his work. And I was just, again, like every time I pick up a new book by a writer who's, you know, made an impact, I'm always like, I, I wonder if these things play out. So I picked it up and I was reading it. And sure enough, he never goes more than five paragraphs mm-hmm. without having somebody speak to somebody else. And it's not necessarily that we need them speaking is that we need them interacting with each other right like we need a scene we need a moment where they can get together so when i'm looking at dialogue and exposition the first thing i do is i skim the page with my eye and i can tell like okay this there's a lot of exposition here we got to figure out why there's or there's not there's not enough dialogue the other thing i can see right away is like are you giving me good segments of dialogue are there like good interchanges between characters or are you breaking those exchanges, those interchanges up with exposition in between? So a lot of times authors will write like 
you know, good, you know, exchange a, character A says this, character B says this, paragraph of summary of character A's thoughts. Character B says this, character A says this, paragraph of summary of character A's thoughts. And when you drop in those paragraphs, you lose all of that great energy you're getting from these characters interacting that the reader really wants to be present you keep zooming in and out of the scene you're going to give the the reader whiplash by like pulling them in the scene pulling them out of the scene pulling them in pulling them out so when i scan a document i'm like all right do we have a ton of exposition do we have good segments of dialogue where i can be like i can see in this manuscript where the characters are interacting if i can get those two things down then we have something to work with otherwise i'm having to do like scene reconstruction i'm having to do like all right we're going to rebuild these scenes from scratch right i've seen people who are very able to have a single character on the page and it's very dynamic but there's generally something else going on in the background to help them along and they're interacting with their environment in some way and also yeah. maybe having an inner exchange but that's pretty much the only thing the only time i want to see them kind of alone yeah. <laughs> is if yeah. they're really fighting it out with themselves and there's yeah. a dog that they can talk to you know? yeah i was working <laughs> and, with one author on. yeah well so you know, the ideal is characters interacting because we get the exchange of emotions and expectations between the two characters. If you really have a lone wolf character who's by themselves all the time, then there are some cheats you can use to like substitute that character interacting. You can get them talking to inanimate objects, right? Like right. you can get them talking to things that are around them that they deal with. Like a famous example, Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway. Right. We cannot watch him for two hours on a beach by himself. We'll Absolutely. go insane. Nobody will tolerate that. So they gave him a volleyball. They put a face on it. He has okay. the most dynamic conversations with this stupid volleyball. <laughs> and the way they do it is that the volleyball actually at times looks like it's responding to him. So it's that like, you know, you can get them talking to inanimate objects. A lot of times I'll see authors have them talk to pets or talk to other animals that don't respond, but kind of get like a personalization. That's not the right word. Um, personification. There we go. That they give, yeah, right. they give the animal personification where it's not speaking, but it's cocking its head. It's, you know, whining, it's barking. Or if they're it's, like me, they actually say the lines for the animal. Yeah. My animals are always talking to me because I give them voices. <laughs> yeah, why not? But it's that key to like have your getting us in the scene by showing the character interacting with something. Uh, Andy Weir's The Martian. Um, right. Not he the. Does. Yeah, he interacts with all kinds of things. And the, the better example, though, I think, is his book, uh, Holy um, Holy Grail. Holy Grail. No, Hail Mary. Hail Mary. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. That's Hail Mary one. project. Yeah. Where he's, um, he's constantly interacting with his spaceship and he's talking to it. It has a computer voice that talks back to him, but he's talking to it even when the computer voice doesn't interact. And then an alien comes into play that can't talk back with him, but they're interacting constantly and their interactions are so interesting. And that's what right. we want. We want the thing about interactions is that it's not that people talking is some magic thing where it's like, oh my gosh, we got to be talking. It's that character interactions drive us into a scene and we want to be in the scene. The easiest way to do that is to get characters interacting. You know, and if you don't have two characters to interact, you got to start figuring out, like, don't have two characters talk to each other. You got to start figuring out, like, okay, what is the lead character interacting with? What's the vehicle interacting with that allows the vehicle to communicate expectations and emotions? 
Right. I've seen I've seen books where the vehicle talks to themselves and you have their inner thought and their exterior vocalization, right? Like so mm-hmm. they're literally having a conversation with themselves. Like it's, you know, but you just have to get that vehicle interacting with something. And when he says vehicle, he means like the main character. The main character. Yeah, the lead character. <laughs> Let's you just get, get that, that straight. <laughs> Sorry about that. Not the spaceship. But I've, the- I fold into the dialogue, Dr. Lingo, <laughs> the dialoguers, you know. Yeah, the 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 Iconic. main character. Yeah, not the vehicle. Yeah, the main character. Get them, like, interacting with something. I love that. Yeah, and and I thought the, the Tom Hanks uh, castaway example was really great. And, and people should go study it when they're – how am I going to write my character's solitary scenes? Because there's almost always at least – there's almost always one scene where they really need to kind of be alone with themselves and figuring stuff out. But that doesn't mean you can't add hardship yeah, and interaction and with the environment and again, I would themselves. And- yeah. And I would encourage you don't have one. Right. Have If you're going to have one, have several because we want to see the character change over time. So right. you have to give us those repeated scenes so we can see that changing come over time. So don't just, if the character is going to talk to their car, don't talk to the car once, talk to the car four times, have four conversations with the car. So we can see at the beginning and at the end, how the conversation with the car changes over time, right? Like if your character is going to talk to the dog, don't just talk to the dog one time, right. talk to the dog multiple times so that we can see. You know, in uh, the house of the Cerulean Sea, the character Linus is alone a lot. He talks to his cat, and the cat is definitely personified in its body language right. to Linus, right? <laughs> like, so it's that like figuring out how to get that character interacting with something. Uh, I think is is so important for those for those lone wolf for those lonely isolated characters. Writing Pursuits is run by Catherine McKee, who has been trusted by fiction authors since 2014 to take their writing to a new level of excellence. Catherine is a three-story method certified editor who specializes in story diagnostics, coaching, and line editing to help you prepare your story for the journey ahead. For more information, go to writingpursuits.com. The link is in the show notes. And now, back to the podcast. One more question. Yeah. In the process of writing a book, do you recommend just writing from the top, you know, as it comes to you, scenes, exposition, dialogue, whatever, or do you, in, you know, in your personal writing, do you do it like a screenplay where you're writing the dialogue and maybe a couple of beats along the way? I'm going to answer it in two ways. The first way, I'll, the first I'm going to answer is like, how do I recommend you write? The second one, I'll give you an exercise to improve your dialogue. So I recommend you write in whatever way motivates you to write. Writing is hard enough. If you're big into plotting, like I'm a big plotter. I cannot start a book until I have a spreadsheet. And my spreadsheet will have every major plot point. Now, as I'm writing, they all change. I can't start until I know where I'm going. Right. That's part of my personality. I also can't go on a trip until I know where I'm going. Right? Like... It's part of who I am. I know writers who like, if they know where they're going, they feel like they've already been there. They they can't know where they're going. They have to just sit down and start writing and figure it out as they go. That is also beautiful. If that's what excites you, do that. The key is however you write, however, whatever way you're motivated to write, keep the dialogue centric, keep the character interactions, the like zooming into scenes, the majority of what you're doing. So if you're a plotter, I tell writers like, okay, every scene you plot 
it has to be this character and this character are what or like these characters are what right like we got to get that conflict we have to get that scene described as the characters interacting just go ahead and do it in your plot that you know jake meets with x character and this happens or like um jess goes to find a new apartment and don't stop there be like and sits down on a couch with coach nick and schmidt to and they interview her right like take it to the take your plot beat all the way to the character interaction because that's the scene you're actually writing don't stop with jess goes to find an apartment Give us like what happens, like go ahead and plot out what happens. If you're a pantser, start with the characters talking to each other. You can always come back later and add in whatever scene, you know, whatever description you need or summary you need. Or if you have to start with a summary, because I know writers, I've worked with writers that are like, I have to summarize what's been happening (laughs) before this scene to get into the scene. I'll be like, great. Write your four paragraph summary, get into the scene, and then before you save it, go delete those first four paragraphs. Fantastic. Like, if that's what you got to do to write, do what you got to do to write. Right. But just be ready to, like, I'm deleting all of that. Like, for me, I have to, I have, I have a weird thing in my brain. I have to start a scene describing the room. It's the weirdest thing. I cannot not do it. I, every scene I write, I start describing the room they're in. And so I've just learned to the role though, because I have seen so many writers who they're just, you know, blah, 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 blah. And and you don't know where they are. You don't know where they are. You got to give them special context. Uh. Yeah. Well, I, in the book, I talk about, you need four things in a scene. You need spatial context. You need to, we talk about it as, um, in the dialogue or community is like the stage of the reader's imagination. So in the book, I talk about the stage of the reader's imagination on that stage. I have to have the scenery. Mm-hmm. I have to have the characters. I have to know who's in the room. Who you have to there? tell me who's there. Do not surprise me three pages I- in that Carlos has been here the whole time. Don't do that. <laughs> if Carlos has been there the whole time, I better know a couple paragraphs in that Carlos is also here. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't need Carlos talking. He was sitting, Carlos sitting over in the corner, silently brooding. That's fine. I just need to know that he's there in the room because his presence in the room changes the scene. So if he's not there, like if you give him to me three pages in, then I have to reimagine the whole scene. Oh crap. Carlos has been here the whole time. So no wonder (laughs) Willie was acting really weird. So that's like, I need the scenery. I need who's in the room. I need um, the emotional tone. I need to understand how I'm supposed to feel about this, specifically how that vehicle character, that lead character feels about what's going on. I need to know that. I need to know what the conflict is. I need to know. And all of the, all four of those things, I got to know early. I got to know, like, what is the problem here that this scene is trying to solve? So if I can get those four, but that being said, there is an exercise I encourage writers to do, which I tell writers, if you write 10,000 words this way, my experience is you'll never go back. So not you'll never go back to writing your normal way. You'll never go back to writing non-dialogue centric scenes. Right. So write 10,000 words. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Write, write 10 scenes to 10. Cause we usually, I find writers typically write 2000 to 3000 words in a sitting. I do. Yeah. Right. Right. For 10 times, write only the dialogue. 
initial the character's name, what they say. Initial the character's name, what they say. Initial what they say. Initial what they say. And then after you write only the dialogue, then come back and fill in the exposition you need. If you and then then you can be done with your scene. If you do that ten times, you will transform how you see scenes because right. you will start thinking, okay, what are, what are we talking about? What are we talking about in this scene? And you'll start getting there. And that, now so more than ever, because we're so, we, you know, we're living in this golden age of visual media. Visual media. I was going to say the same thing where we can, we can binge to our heart's desire. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if it's not gripping, we can turn it off and go somewhere yeah. else. Absolutely. I realized that um, this was just a couple of weeks ago. I realized like, oh crap. I, I live in Baltimore and I love Baltimore. There's a Baltimore movie named The Diner that's very famous that launched a ton of careers that I've never seen. Okay. I was like, I should go watch that. I had it in, in 30 seconds, oh. right? Like it is a movie from the 80s. There's no reason. When I was a teenager, if I wanted to watch The Diner, I might have to go to like two to three different blockbusters okay. to find the one that might have it in stock right. and then I could rent it. But I yeah, I can get up the hold of whatever I want. And so- Knowing that we just have to take into account that like our books need to feel more like movies than they have before. Right. And that's, so that means they have to be dialogue centric. They have to be screenplay ready. So I I encourage writers like take 10 turns, take 10 writing sessions and just write, write it as a screenplay first. You don't have to do all the formatting. You don't have to do the like log lines in the right. beginning. No, None of that. Yeah, I don't no, want any of that. I just want you to write the characters talking first and then come back and fill in the exposition. And it'll change how you write. After you do it 10 times, you can go back to writing how you normally do. I actually tried that experiment, by the way. So, I, Oh, did I, you? Did it? How did it yes, work? I, yeah, it worked great. And I mean, yeah. I thought it strengthened, uh, strengthened my grasp of writing entirely. I, I mean, I have written, I've written five books and I'm writing a six and the sixth one is the one I, I did that with. I just use it as an experience nice. and um, yeah, I can testify here. That yeah. makes me super happy. Thank you <laughs> for sharing that. That really makes me happy. And all those things about the big scenes with a lot of characters, you know, I, I bit off more than I could do there. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. Where I had like six people on the six or seven people on the stage almost all the time. But like tough. you say, you know, after struggling is struggling, it was, oh, you know, split them into groups, have some yeah. that are on stage, have some that are off stage. If they come across the stage, well, then, you know, that's fine. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's been an interesting byproduct of all of this work I've done over the last two and a half years on like understanding dialogue and building these tools and, you know, it's down. I appreciate the masters so much more than I used to. Right. Like, now you know why they're great. You know. Now I know why they're great. Now I pick when I pick up a Stephen King novel, I'm like, man, this guy nails character interactions. He crushes character interactions. He makes you feel so much that his lead characters feel. And it is, you're like, yeah, that's why. Yeah, he writes horror. Yeah, he's, you know, he write he kind of defined the horror genre. Yeah. But the reason he could do all that is because this guy can just slam character interactions, right? You know, I read Tony Morrison and I'm like, yeah, Tony Morrison stands the test of time. We continue to read her work. Beloved is a forever classic because Tony Morrison can write a hell of some great dialogue. 
Like wow. it's just, and you're just blow her characters, Sethi and Paul D have such, and um, Denver have such amazing voices and beloved. The four characters in the book have such amazing voices and there's scenes with all four of them in it. And they're incredible scenes. They're just, mm-hmm. and it is what reading it is like reading a mat. It is reading a master at work. You're like, yeah, this is a, I am watching a true artist wield these tools in a way that i can't do it on my own or it's like we study it and you can study it yeah i study it i read it i improve it i watch it i'm like man this is incredible or i i tease the dial we have a running joke in the dialogue doctor community that you know i always bring up infinite jest by david foster wallace because it is it is the prime example of a book with no plot it has no plot it is just a, a it is a insanely long book of scenes that are taken completely out of space and time they are just there's actually a mathematical formula i've one of the dialoguers sent me one time that like well if you do this mathematical equation and rearrange the chapters based on this equation you can find the plot of the book <laughs> and so i was like i'm not doing that but people love People love that book. And the reason they love that book is because he is a master of dialogue. There's a scene, one of the opening chapters, there's a scene of a character who is being talked at by, he's a tennis player, and he's being talked at by his parents and professors, and they're like, his coaches are there, and they're having this big conversation. And as they're talking, he's going it feels like he's having a seizure it is the most amazing scene uh, you know the the conversation is just the dialogue is incredible the way he works all the characters in are great they're the modulation of their voices to express emotion is just flat out mesmerizing like it is and you read it you're like yeah that's why people read this book even though it has no plot like this is this, or like I really like Cormac McCarthy, who's has weird grammatical things going on in his books. Man, the the character interactions in the road are incredible. Right. The yeah. father and the son on the road are just heartbreaking to watch these two characters interact. Or like I just read, I just reread Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. All right, mm-hmm. I had forgotten. Talk about authentic and well designed character voice. I had forgotten how powerful because I watched the TV show and the TV show and the book kind of blended in my head together. I forgot how powerful the vehicle character's voice is. And she's got these scenes, these chorus scenes where all of the handmaids are together in a room and uh, the two aunts, Aunt Lydia, and I can't remember the other aunt's name. Okay, I can't either. Yeah, are um, (laughs) talking, are putting these women in the center of the room and you know, saying these kind of having them confess their sins. Right. And then the chorus the of they don't it's not called the chorus in the book, but the chorus of voices, you know, and we all said shame, shame, shame. Right? Like grouping all of the other handmaid's tales together handmaidens together in that singular voice. Right. And then to allow the lead character one sentence of reflection about how it felt good. And it just crushes you just like oh this is but it's just that 
understanding, you know, Margaret Atwood knows how to use her tools and she is just a master craftsman swinging those tools around. And it just, you know, it's, I think studying dialogue in this way has not just made me a better writer, but makes me a more appreciative reader. More appreciative reader. Well, Well, speaking of books, so like, talk to me about the book and when and how people can get it and so forth. Yeah, so the book, um, it's weird to transition talking about master writers to talking about my book because this is not. Um, so <laughs> this is the funny transition. Uh, so the book is. Uh, Don't do that. Don't yeah. fuck it. <laughs> okay, well, so let me say, I kept it intentionally short. I had a debate with some of my editors about like, should we take all these master works we've been looking at and put it in there and make it like a Robert McKee sized book of like 700 pages? Right. And I was like, you know, the problem with those is that I, I I read them slowly and I read them like reference material. I don't read them like a book. And so it was like, well, let's get, let's keep all of those, like, let's keep all of that big weighty stuff out and let's just get to the principles. Let's keep it hard and dirty and and fast and like, hey, here's the concept. Here's the tool. Here's what, here's the way to use it. That's good. Here's some exercises to do. Like, here's some examples. Excellent. Here's some exercises to do. So I, it is a incredibly practical book. There's eight tools. You're going to pull out of it around dialogue. We go big to small. It, it looks at the first, it looks at like the construction of dialogue uh, versus exposition. And then the actual like components of dialogue. And then we talk about the different types of scenes. We talk about the different ways to open scenes. And then we get into character voice. We talk about character voice. We talk about voice modulation uh, to show emotion. We talk about voice modulation to show character growth. And then finally, we talk about cast building. And like, let's so put what together. that tells me is that it's highly usable that's the goal this is something you can read in a day and ideally walk away going like okay there's a couple concepts in here i can start trying immediately that's the goal yeah so it's uh and you can get it anywhere it's it's wide so uh right now as as of this recording it's on pre-order as an ebook everywhere where Um, can people find you oh people can find me at the dialogue doctor.com that's the best place to find me and the, you can find me in a lot of ways there. There's a <laughs> free newsletter that comes out once a week. There's the podcast that comes out once a week. The podcast is a lot of me. Part of what I'm excited about for the book is the, you know, like I said, it, the community has been going for two and a half years and we have developed our own shorthand. Right. And even people who like aren't part of the Patreon, who just come on the podcast to do editing sessions, it's really fascinating to me. If you if we listen to our early editing sessions, mm-hmm. I do a lot of work of like, hey, don't summarize. Hey, pull this summary out. Hey, don't, you know, let's take this summary and let's make it into a scene. I don't, I haven't done that for like a year because the people doing sessions with me have been listening for a year. So and now they have the shorthand. Yeah, they all have the shorthand and we'll get on a call. I realize a lot of times, like, well, this last episode I was on with Paterio. And they've been a part of the community for a long time and they are an excellent writer and they and I have done tons of sessions together. And, you know, uh, we were just throwing out like engine anchor, anchor vehicle hazard without explaining them. And I was like, man, I got to get this book into people's hands so that they can actually listen to the podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> so you can find me on the podcast. I do master classes on August a, uh, sorry, August uh, 5th. I think it's August 5th is a Saturday. I'll be teaching a four-hour master class on uh, using the Enneagram to design character growth. 
Um, so we'll talk about like the nine archetypes and then for 30 minutes, we'll look at the nine archetypes and then we'll spend, um, three and a half hours talking about like, what is character growth? How does character growth work? Like, how can we use these archetypes as examples of like showing characters that grow? Like, so yeah, so there's all kinds of places you can find me there. Okay. And then I, I will say, if you're going to buy the book, I recommend the paperback because there's a lot of charts in the book. And it's tough to know how big the charts are going to be on your e-reader. So if you're reading it on your phone, I cannot guarantee that the type of those charts will not be two-point font. So so I would would recommend getting the paperback because on the paperback, I can control the size of the charts. So right, right, right. Yeah. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of charts where we're like comparing things. That's awesome. Okay, well then, uh, that's called the dialogue. Doctor will see you now. How to write dialogue and characters? Uh, characters readers will love. There we get the whole subtitle. Yeah, and uh, by <laughs> Jeff Elkins, E L K I N S, and you can find Jeff at dialoguedoctor.com. Thank you so much for coming. Catherine, thank you. This was right. fantastic. I I love talking to you every time. <laughs> I enjoy it too. Well, have a great evening. You too. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a star rating and follow the podcast. If you're new around here, I hope you will sign up for Writing Pursuits Tips for Authors, my newsletter that comes out most Thursdays when health and life permit. That link and all the links mentioned in today's episode are in the show notes at writingpursuits.com. Please join us on Wednesdays for new episodes and keep writing, my friends. Keep writing. Keep writing.